pandemic means that banks' position as a social good has only been strengthened. It has trashed valuation, so it has gone even cheaper for China banks. It becomes less transaction-oriented, more advice, and more problem-solving. COVID-19, what hasn't it changed? Lives, economies, consumer behavior, and for businesses, it's often forced a completely different way of operating. This series puts those changes into context. We'll ask how different sectors have responded to the pandemic and what it might mean for investors. The relative market cap weight for the financials has been down for 10 months in a row. This is the worst losing streak for this group since the global financial crisis. Banks have been on the front line for economies in this crisis, used by central banks and politicians as a conduit of financial support to businesses and workers. The sector has proven to be a critical shock absorber. But as debts pile up, what might the repercussions be of being a lender in a crisis? What do long-term radical monetary policies mean for the financial sector and its bottom line? And what about the digital usurpers, the fintech stars? As masses of people migrate more of their lives online, could it be the final nail in the coffin for the traditional high street bank? Listen on to find out. Well, with me today, I have three analysts from Fidelity International who cover some of the biggest markets in this sector, starting with Monica Lee in Shanghai. Monica, welcome to you. You're an equity analyst covering Chinese banks. Let's start with the numbers. Can you give us a figure that's illustrated some of the upheaval that the sector has experienced this year because of the pandemic? Sure. My number would be 1.5 trillion RMB or around 220 billion US dollar. This is the amount that China's financial sector is asked to forgo this year by cutting interest rate, lowering fees, and also extending loans. So I think to put things into perspective, this is around 20% of sector revenue last year. So I would say the national service duty is pretty heavy this year. Uh, it's quite a sacrifice to make, isn't it? Uh, we also have Federico Wynn, a cross-asset analyst who studies European banks. Now, Federico, cross-asset, uh, certainly in this uh, context, means that you look at both equities and the credit that these banks issue. Um, welcome to you. Is there a number from the region that stopped you in your tracks this year? Yeah, my number is 1 million. And basically, in the United Kingdom, 1 million customers are connecting to their banks via trusted third party. This number is actually incredibly small. Uh, Lloyd's Bank alone has 21 million savings customers. So uh, banks in COVID uh, means that digital adoption has really surged and that fintechs have an opening. And the reason for this opening is called the PSD2 European Legislation Payment Services Directive Number 2. It, it basically allows third parties to connect into what is the big moat of the bank, all its customer information, all its customer data. If you click a box, your bank must give all your data to a third party. This is going to cause a lot of competition and a sea of change going forward. It sounds dull, a directive, but oh so powerful, it turns out. Thank you very much, Federico. And my third guest today is Lee Sotos. Lee, um, you're also a cross-asset banking analyst, but you focus on US names. So what's your number? Yes, so uh, my number is 90%. 90% of US bankers 
were working from home within one week of rolling lockdowns. In in some ways, I think that's a testament to the adaptability, um, new risk management practices, and, and the flexibility that technology has afforded the banking industry over time. When talking with banks, they could foresee up to 25, maybe 30 percent of bankers on some sort of semi-permanent um, work from home type of arrangement. But I, I think we have to remember that banking is is an apprenticeship type of business and and it's it's a learned by doing type of business. So, you know, I, I think they're also quite hopeful that uh, they can get as many people back to work over time as possible. Lee, thank you, and uh, great to have you all with me today. Federico, um, I mentioned in the introduction that the banks have acted as shock absorbers during the crisis. Have they redeemed themselves after triggering the global financial crisis a decade ago? Banks have certainly been part of the solution, not part of the problem uh, this time around. I mean, basically, politicians, governments, central banks have all used the banks to uh, form part of the COVID response. And basically, this is work that has not just happened suddenly, magically. It's the past 10 years of worth of work in terms of creating high capital levels, high liquidity levels at banks, a regulatory environment where bank management teams have to respond to the requests of both politicians and central bankers. So banks are being used to transmit uh, central bank monetary policy. Banks are being used to transmit government fiscal policy now. Uh, and then also banks are also fulfilling a social role increasingly. So indeed, if we look at how banks are acting now, basically you have to put your ESG lens on and think about you know, the multiple stakeholders that banks are dealing with and where, what the importance of those stakeholders are. And certainly this COVID crisis has meant that you know, central banks, the government, public opinion are very, very strong stakeholders within what banks are trying to achieve in the crisis. And they certainly are positive actors this time around. So the, the crisis has actually been the proof um, of the transformation that the regulators, that the central bankers and politicians um, wanted. Are they, as far as you can tell, are they pleased with, um, with that performance during this crisis? I, I would say that the politicians, regulators are more than pleased. This vindicated them. If we, look, if we think about regulation as a pendulum, it went from being very incredibly light uh, pre-crisis where management teams were looking for super normal profits with no checks and balances whatsoever. And that's what caused the crisis. Now regulation on banking is very, very strict. They run with a lot of excess capital, a lot of excess liquidity, and this time around, just as the pendulum was about to swing towards lighter regulation, uh, the COVID crisis came and banks were able to react and respond and fulfill the role that regulators had always imagined. If the worst happens, we want the banks to be able to lend. We want the banks to be able to push the fiscal stimulus, the, uh, the monetary stimulus forward. And this is exactly what they've done this time around. That's a vote of confidence, certainly in Europe. What about the States, Lee? Um, has the picture in the US been the same over the past, um, past few months? Yeah, I, I generally agree with you know, the, the comments that Federico made. Um, when you think of the banks today or pre-COVID versus pre-Great Financial Crisis, they were in much better shape coming into this. Capital levels, um, as well as liquidity levels, were two times what they were pre-GFC. 
trading has moved from basically a warehousing business to an agent business, and bank underwriting and portfolio management is better. Bringing it back to the regulators, I think, you know, one of the things that has really changed U.S. banking is just annual stress testing. It's had a huge impact in the way banks manage their capital um, and the way that regulators interact with the banks. I mean, one anecdote I would bring up is back in the 1990s, essentially 70%, 75% of leveraged loans sat on bank balance sheets. Today, that's about 10%. The rest is owned by the non-banking sector. So you, you can see just a change in the way banks entered this crisis. I mean, overall, yes, they've done a good job. Um, banks in the U.S. have distributed $400 billion of PPP funds. They have offered significant short and medium-term forbearance on consumer fees and consumer principal and, and interest payments. Um, they've absorbed $2 trillion of deposits while, you know, at their peak making $900 billion of loans. So I, I think there were a lot of positives coming in. I would just highlight, though, you know, not everything was perfect. The trading environment still required Fed, Federal Reserve intervention. Um, you did see some freezing up there, and some of that was due to regulation and, and you know, sort of the inability of banks to, to expand their balance sheets. Let's face it, there will be fraud in some of these programs in, in the rush to get money out to uh, the public sector. And, you know, ultimately, credit quality is an unknown. Banks have put a lot of new loans on their balance sheet. There's a lot of forbearance going on. Loan loss reserves for large U.S. financials have increased from $85 billion to $185 billion in two quarters. I mean, with, with capital levels staying essentially flat. So... They are a lot more resistant. Um, they have provided a, a great shock absorber. And, and I think the perception is changing. Although, as I talked to one executive recently and asked him the same type of question, his response is, yes, I think we've done a great job, but bankers will never be anyone's heroes. Do you think perceptions will ever change or have they forever been tarnished by the, um, the global financial, financial crisis? Forever is a very long time, but this is a long-term process, and I think the banks will come out of this crisis, you know, in a much better position, according to the public as well as politicians. But keep in mind, the difficult decisions banks are going to have to make are going to come up six months from now, a year from now, because they still have to protect their banks. And ultimately, there will be difficult decisions if this continues for a long period of time as to who gets credit and who doesn't get credit. Monica, is it the same picture, just thinking about the public perception of banks, is it the same picture in China? Because you, you talked at the beginning of this um, episode about the, the sacrifice that banks had been essentially ordered um, to make by the, um, by the government in order to get through the crisis. Does that mean that they're held in a, in a different regard in China by the public? Mm, yeah, I think uh, China banks for a long time, they are seen as part of the solution when things are difficult. So you may recall back in the global financial crisis time, um, China banks did a lot of national service duties 
Um, they lend huge amount to corporates and local government financing vehicles. And some of those loans later reemerged as non-performing loans a couple of years down the line. Non-performing loans. Companies not paying back uh, the loan as, as they as they go full bankrupt or something. Yeah. And this time, I think there's no different. And people kind of take it for granted that banks will step up and uh, help economy again. And this is exactly what they did. They cut interest rates, they cut fees, and also offering moratoriums. And I think it, they actually um, acted positively to help China economy climbing out of the first quarter slump. But I don't think they will get a lot of credit for this because this is just so well anticipated. I'm beginning to get a warm glow of, of, of affection when I start to think about banks now. But um, we'll see if that stays as we go through this um, through this recording. But um, staying with, with China, I mean, one of the things that's happened during the pandemic was we've gone through lockdowns and then that's been eased in, in different ways, is that um, people have been very careful about contact with other people and uh, just literally physical contact. Um, and that's been meant a shift to digital payments, to the digital economy, which is particularly well developed in China already. WeChat, for example, is a, a, a good one where it's an app that allows you to do everything from messaging friends to buying your groceries. Everything is done online, including payments. I mean, it's, it's rare to see cash being used in China now, isn't it, Monica? Yeah, I myself haven't seen cash for, I think, at least a couple of months. And there's really no need to pull out cash or even credit card from your bags. So I think people are just so used to digital way of things. We buy things online, we pay for things online, and increasingly we make investment um, and we make borrowings from online platform as well. So if things are moving away from physical money, the, the, the notes and the coins, um, is that good for banks? I mean, logistically, it's less expensive to move um, money around digitally than it is to, uh, to collect and deposit cash. But what other impact has it had on, on banks in China? Yeah, sure. So I think managing cash has always been loss making for the banks. So they're happy to just get rid of the cash. But if you're thinking about China moving on to digital payment, um, the current payment system is that over 40% is already taken by the third party payment companies like Alipay uh, and Tenpay mailing. So for that kind of revenue, um, banks have to share it with those uh, fintech giants. Um, so there will be some economic loss in the process. And also, banks wouldn't have full access to the data um, when people are transacting online. So they will be disintermediated in terms of the access to uh, data and maybe increasingly access to customers and also funding. Does that mean that there's um, better competition then for these customers and as a result, perhaps better services for Chinese uh, customers that um, you're not seeing in the retail markets elsewhere in the world yet? Oh, definitely. So China customers, they are treated... I think world class. Um, um, so we have very great apps on our phones and we can compare prices and we always go for the most convenient ones, right? The ones that offers the best user experience that are easier just to m move money from one account to another. I think this naturally happens and people kind of take this for granted as well. So we all have our default options for payment. It's Alipay for me and maybe it's Tempay for another person. But never the banks. Never the banks. Okay. What about um, in Europe then, uh, Federico? Is it always the banks or has there been enough challenges from the fintech companies to start to change the landscape here as well? I think in Europe, we're possibly more early days compared with China. Um, certainly, 
the European regulators are very, very keen to open competition up and really push fintechs and push neobanks in direct competition with incumbent banks. And as I was saying, there's this PSD2 legislation, Payment Services Directive 2. And basically, it allows you to authorize a third party to access all your data that a bank holds on you. So it means that um, these third parties could, for example, help you manage your deposits amongst various banks, would allow to have a single view of all your banking um, investments and savings. So it is a huge competitive threat for banks. What we've seen during COVID actually is a move from basically neobanks competing directly with uh, you know, incumbent banks for possibly a segment of their clients to a more collaborative approach by the incumbent banks where some fintechs may provide utility. So it's going from less competition to more symbiotic relationship where the banks may be able to bolt on certain customer journeys, certain services that make the customer experience better. They may not be wholly interested in that particular aspect, but the fintechs come into play. So they're beginning to work collaboratively with them. Neobanks are still there and neobanks are still competing on price. For example, price on deposits, price on loans, price on certain uh, services. And within that space, um, you know, we've seen a mixed record for those neobanks. So some of them are not doing very well. And some of them that have chosen, you know, certain niches like SMEs are doing very well. And how are clients, how are customers reacting? Because um, people are famously very conservative when it comes to their banks. They change their banks less frequently than they change their, uh, their partners, for, exa- for example. But um, how, how, have, how has that changed during the pandemic? Yeah, like I said, you know, at the end of last year, only 1 million uh, UK customers were using a third party to access their, their bank. Um, so it means that people indeed gaining the trust is a very big issue for fintechs. Uh, fintechs are not trusted in the same way large incumbent banks are. They're trusted with a portion of savings, with certain transactions, but they're not certainly trusted with the entire banking wallet for the majority of customers. So it's an uphill battle to gain the trust. But as we get adoption, uh, you know, first you have early adopters, but COVID has forced a lot of people to start using their banking app in the first place. And the next step is using fintechs. So it certainly has speeded things up, but we're still kind of early innings in Europe and the trust must be built. And the legacy banks, unlike the neobanks, as you, as you call them, or fintechs generally, they've got this huge overhead, haven't they, of the, the branches. They will all have been shut. Um, it's the same in Europe as in, in, in America, where Lee was talking about you know, 90% of, um, of staff working from home. Will they be forced still to keep those branches open? Because that's certainly you know, part of the political discussion that you hear, that the banks um, must keep branches open for those people who want to go in. Do you think that's changed during the pandemic? I think it hasn't changed at all, really. Um, the pandemic means that banks' position as a social good, in theory, has only been strengthened. The pandemic means that you know, we want to save the high street. We want to save all the SMEs, uh, the local high street branch of the incumbent banks has always been there in the high street. Banks are trying to accelerate bank closures because of digital adoption. But on on the other side, the political establishment and public opinion will not allow for them to actually completely close branches. So I, I, I definitely think 
they'll be they'll expedite branch closures, but it's not going to be the same as absolutely changing their business model 100%. Lee, let me come to you, because if I think about banking in the States or, or, or paying in the States, until relatively recently, I was still able to sign for a credit card instead of a, um, a PIN, let alone um, contactless. But how has that changed over the past um, six, seven months? Well, in the U.S., I mean, the payment system has long been viewed as as antiquated versus the rest of the world. The U.S. is just now getting to contactless payments, and and the adoption is fairly quick, um, but it will still take time. But I, I think that brings up an interesting point in that payments has been kind of the venue or sort of the entry where technology has been most successful on, on the banking side and, and where probably the biggest threats are. You know, I did want to add something to uh, Federico's comments on, on branching, and I, I think there's a couple important points. Um, bank branches are unlikely to go away. If anything, consumers have shown themselves to be multi-channel users. I mean, people thought, you know, when ATMs came into being that the bank branches were going to go away, and, and that never happened. It, it, it it just layered on some new costs. When you look at um, general surveys, 75, 80% of, of consumers still want a bank branch near them, and that includes millennials and earlier generations. So whether it's just to go and complain or to get advice, I think branching changes. It becomes less transaction-oriented, more advice, and more problem-solving. In talking to banks, you know, I think every bank would like its same footprint. They just want less space. They, they realize they have too much space for, for what they really need. And so digital adoption, um, probably the most powerful thing I see in the U.S. is a thinning of branch networks, not a, a removal of branch networks. Interesting. So you still want to have the physical presence, still to have contact with your bank um, every now and then. Um, perhaps, I mean, the picture you're, you're all painting now of, um, uh, of banks being um, one of the heroes of the pandemic and helping save things means that maybe you just want to go and hang out with a banker. But um, Monica, um, you, you talked about the, the end of physical cash in, in China. You haven't seen notes or coins yourself. Um, what about digital currency itself? Um, because that's being tested in some Chinese uh, cities. What does that mean for, for, for the banking sector? Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, the trial was pretty recent. So China is piloting on digital currency in four cities um, since April this year. And initial plan is to replace a small part of the cash in circulation, I think. Um, so China takes lead in digital currency experiment. But I think it they will take gradual steps in rolling out the experiment to more cities over a couple of years time, I think. So the impact to the existing system will by no means be disruptive because as we have discussed, a large part of the payment system is already digital, uh, largely dominated by giants like Alipay and Tempay. So people are quite used to that convenient way of paying for things and adding digital currency to your wallet will just offer people another option. I don't think it will be that much of a game changer, frankly. Um, why is it needed then? Why, why not just bother with, um, with, with standard payments, the, the equivalent of, of, of credit and debit cards or whether you're using it through your phone uh, or WeChat? 
Why do you need digital currencies? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think the central bank of China, PBOC, they really welcome digital currency with、um, both arms, really, because this is the best thing you could think of for central banks. With digital currency,、um, you can track every money transactions. You can track the flows of money from one place to another throughout its entire lifetime, and this makes job much easier to tackle. Tax evasion and tackle money laundering, for example. So I think the PBOC, the central bank in China, is really behind this latest initiative and in pushing、uh, forward the digital currency experiment. And another incentive I could think of is for merchants, because currently when they transact through Alipay or Tenpay, they still have to pay a small amount of the transaction fees to those、uh, tech giants, and it's shared between the banks and tech giants and the infrastructure. To a provider, but through digital currency, they have to pay literally nothing to facilitate those transactions. But that's that's bad news for the banks, isn't it? I mean, that's another income stream that will have evaporated. Yeah, exactly. But I think for banks, because cur- currently the the data and the, the transaction was previously through the fintech companies, and they didn't get hold of it anyway. So by adopting the digital currency, they will get hold of the data at least. Or partially, so I think there's something in for the banks, although they also take sacrifices by letting go of the transaction fees. I think banks are kind of in this experiment, partly pushed by the PBOC, the central bank, and partly because of the data access they they can see behind this. Okay. Well, we've been talking largely about the retail side of banking, but let's move to the investment banking side. Federico, what has all this、um, market activity that we've we've seen、um, incredible volatility since、um, March?、Um, what's that meant for the business? Well, banks have made an absolute killing over the the past few months. Really, I mean. The COVID crisis and the response to the COVID crisis first meant that volatility increased massively,、uh, and whilst banks, you know, no longer carry huge balance sheet kind of positions、uh, for trading, you know, they were not hurt by the downfall, but certainly bid ask spreads widened materially as、uh, you know, market participants bought and sold in an absolute frenzy, and they were able to gather the bid ask spread. Then, as government、uh, policies came through in terms of、uh, central bank bond buying, fiscal policy, the entire package of response to COVID meant that bond markets went on an absolute winning streak, and that meant that、uh, first the banks were able to ride on the back of that, but it also meant that a lot of corporates have issued、uh, bonds and have taken out credit in spades.、Uh, much of this was precautionary. Uh, but it means that the bond markets have really been alight with activity, and that's been very, very helpful for, to any bank that was involved in bond markets, currency markets、uh, have been particularly frothy. What it means going forward is probably that a lot of、uh, corporates have pre-issued, and that this bonanza is going to turn into headwind into the following years. Because people have borrowed as much as they can borrow now, so it simply brought forward the activity that that would have been happening next year or, or years years to come. Indeed, I think it has brought forward a lot of activity, and we're not going to see markets as frothy as this, and certainly activity as high as in the debt capital markets as we've seen it. 
So Lee, does that mean that when you're looking at, uh, at your banks that you're starting to dial down your forecasts because there's going to be leaner, leaner months and years ahead? Well, I, I think with the U.S. banks, the, the impact is even greater because the large U.S. investment banks um, and, and global banks have taken significant share over the years. And, and so if you look at pre-great financial crisis, the U.S. banks had about 65% of investment banking. That's close to 85 to 90% of global investment banking. And in trading, they've gone from roughly 45% share to about 65% share. So clearly it has a, a large impact on earnings as, as, as well as profitability because it is fairly profitable growth. It's not necessarily capital intensive. I guess the way I look at it is, yes, there's been a tremendous amount of capital raised to date. The degree to which there, this has been a pull forward is arguable. Um, I think if... The situation on a global macro basis gets worse due to COVID, then you are going to see companies need to go back to market and need to raise capital. They're just going to run out. And, you know, if the situation gets better and we start to see some actual economic growth, most of the capital that has been raised and liquidity that has been raised has been defensive in nature. And so there's been little to no growth capital, actually, that's been formed over the last six months. And so with a better GDP backdrop, you may see more equity capital markets, as well as a resurgence in M&A. But, you know, I think to Federico's point, debt capital markets probably has seen the greatest pull forward at this point. But you, you, you have to put some normalization back into your numbers. I mean, let's face it, second quarter of 2020 was the best trading quarter ever. So you, you certainly can't, you know, sort of straight line or, or grow off of that in, in a normal environment. And what about China, Monica? Because, um, you know, huge retail participation in uh, investing and trading in, in China. What's the pattern been? Yeah, I think the retail investors are being really active this round. Um, but there is difference uh, versus the last cycle in 2015. So they increasingly participate in the equity market through purchasing equity funds rather than punting by themselves. Um, so this actually benefited banks a lot, especially for those retail-oriented banks with focus on the retail consumers. Um, and especially if they have good infrastructure online, the consumers just uh, buy the equity products, equity funds on their mobile app. So that's um, investment then. Now, the big area of concern in the sector is corporate banking, perhaps the biggest shock absorber as they lend to businesses that have been struggling through lockdowns. Now, Federico, you've talked about this already, but how, how has the virus affected the corporate banking operations, if we think about that specifically, of your European names? So corporate banking uh, is particularly affected by COVID. Um, the lockdown led to severe impact on several sectors, you know, everything from airlines, auto, travel, leisure, restaurants, severely impacted. Uh, many of these are, you know, represented within banks' portfolios. So it means that the credit quality of the banks is going to get worse. And uh, a lot of the banks have had to build up a high level of provisions for certain economic sectors. Also, the banks have lent uh, government-guaranteed loans guaranteed between 100 and call it 80% to 
to a wide range of companies, everything from large to mid and even SME type size companies have received government loans. So this impacts the banks in many ways. I mean, the government response is positive for the asset quality of the banks. Furlough schemes, these government guaranteed loans are positive, but it doesn't take away that some of these sectors are not going to bounce back very quickly due to social distancing. And many of these companies may be beyond repair, which means that banks will suffer uh, big NPL losses as a result. Indeed, defaults in Europe will rise across the board. Banks have given us indications of where they think uh, these defaults are are going to be going, and they use what's called um, a IFRS 9 forward-looking economic projections to determine what their default rates could be by customer and by industry. Now, Lee, this picture of bad loans, we've got um, low growth in um, in most economies, close to zero interest rates. Um, that sounds like a fairly impossible wall for banks uh, to scale, certainly on this side of their business. Certainly, there are some at-risk sectors, as Federico was talking about, hospitality, travel, leisure, um, bricks and mortar, retail, which was, was having issues even, even pre-COVID. So as I had mentioned, the banks have um, increased reserves by over $100 billion. I think one big difference between U.S. corporate banking and European corporate banking is the prevalence of the capital markets. And so when you look at the peak of commercial line draws, um, there were about $800 billion of loans formed within, within U.S. corporates. And those were all basically commercial line drawdowns. Those are quite expensive for corporates. Right now, that number stands at about $400 billion. So roughly $400 billion has been refinanced back out into the capital markets, which, you know, the bank loses, obviously, some of that stream. But at the same token, some of the risk goes away as well. I don't want to downplay the risk. Um, I, I think that, you know, the jury is out until... We're really not going to see loss formation probably until mid next year, early next year. And so we're not necessarily sure at this point what the loan quality is going to look like. And just one, one other question, Lee, just while, while we're on this, is that um, when you're thinking about the banks in, in, in America, that they, there, are, there are two very clear types. You've got the large national names that, that everybody knows they've got a branch uh, from, from coast to coast. You've also got tiny little um, banks that might have a couple of branches uh, in a small town in rural somewhere in the middle of America. Um, surely the way that those two sides have weathered this crisis um, is, is different as well. Yes, there's a clear, clear bifurcation between you know how banks are doing. Um, your largest banks may have 45 to 55% fee income as a percent of revenues. And so that fee income helps them to continue to generate profitability. They also are much more diversified in their sources of revenue, where when you look at smaller banks, whether it's a community bank or even just a smaller regional bank, um, 75% of their revenues are tied to spread income. And that spread income now is under pressure, one, from rates, and two, from uh, potential credit issues down the line. So, you know, I think we've historically favored some of the larger banks because of this diversification and, and sort of inherent safety 
um, in, in the revenue streams. Okay, you mentioned credit then, and we're going to talk about credit next. Um, but instead of the credit that the that the banks are uh, extending, um, what about their own? Now, both Lee and Federico, you're both cross asset analysts, as I, as I mentioned at the top. So you're both looking at the credit and equity of the banks in tandem. Federico, um, how do the two asset classes compare when you're con- conducting your analysis as an investor? Yeah, I mean, when we look at uh, equities versus fixed income in banks, um, firstly, and particularly when you mix that in with the crisis and everything that's happened to interest rates, uh, asset quality and the government response, you have to think about all the different stakeholders involved. And I've already spoken to you about the importance of central banks and governments as stakeholders and banks. But fixed income is also a very important stakeholder. So you could argue that fixed income investors have been given precedence uh, over equity investors by the central banks, by the regulators, and by the politicians. This is embodied by uh, the fact that banks need to have solid funding and financing, and they've tried to keep the cost of funding low for the banks because they do not want to uh, have to take over banks and take over these liabilities. So what it's meant, for example, in practical terms, is that dividends were the first thing to be suspended. Dividends hit equity equity holders disproportionately and help fixed income investors. So this is like the clearest indication of the regulator telling the banks, you will shore up your capital base, you will not reward equity holders, and you will make it safer for fixed income investors. Um, They have also reduced minimum capital ratios, but not allowed this excess capital to be paid out. This once again, is very, very, very uh, positive for fixed income investors. So fixed income investors have enjoyed a huge rally in terms of where banking paper was priced just after the crisis to where it is now and basically have reaped the benefits of a regulator, politicians and governments that have tried to keep this um, cohort of investors safe with high levels of capital because they want these banks to be well-funded they want the fixed income cost to reduce and they want the availability of debt capital to flow to the banking system because this is positive for their COVID response. So if you compare the recommendations that you, that you make as an analyst, if you compare the recommendations you're making now with the ones you were making just before the crisis, th- there may well have been a change in the companies um, that you're putting forward. But what about the asset mix? The asset mix has not changed hugely. And the reason is that bank equities were under a lot of pressure even prior to the crisis. Um, and this has gotten even worse because uh, shareholders have been very low in the pecking order of stakeholders, uh, whereas bondholders have benefited a lot, as I've already said, from the government response. So um, banks were already suffering from low interest rates, from high levels of competition, um, high costs from the branch network and legacy. And that has not changed during the crisis. Perhaps it's gotten a lot worse. Um, So bank equities have been under pressure and will remain under pressure. Um, What has changed now is that they've become very, very cheap. The question is, is cheapness enough in terms of bank equities to make them uh, a solid buy? And probably not if you don't have all the elements that you need there to make a solid midterm and long-term case for the banks. Low rates forever is a very big drag on European banks in particular 
and also uh, the UK could go to negative rates, this would also be a big drag on earnings. So we're not seeing positive earnings revisions in the banks, which is what would drive the equity prices higher currently. They might need um, revenue streams from uh, selling coffee in the branches um, if, uh, if if that carries on. Um, Lee, is it the same in the, in the States? I mean, um, Federico was saying particularly uh, Europe and especially the UK, um, not quite the same yet in um, in the States. I, I think it's similar with, with some nuances. Um, you know, I, I certainly find the reaction of, of bank credit investors versus equity investors to be interesting. Um, credit spreads are at or near tights, while bank equities in the U.S. are, are down 30% on a year-over-year basis. Um, I, I really think that this dichotomy is is reflective of the the bond market views banks as significantly safer and, and, and more stable and you know with some some level of government support versus something like the the great financial crisis well the equity market is is interpreting you know future revenue challenges related to potentially lower loan volumes um, low rates and the potential for continued high credit provisions. I, I, I think, you know, some of the differences, though, are from a regulatory standpoint. The U.S. banks typically pay out more of their capital through buybacks versus dividends. And U.S. banks immediately, voluntarily stop their buybacks. And so dividends are have historically just been less of kind of the, the equity payoff in, in, in U.S. banks. And since then, the Fed has instituted basically a, a mathematical formula on the ability to cover dividends in which most banks seem like they should be able to cover their dividends. So I do not necessarily see a wholesale cut in U.S. bank dividends in the same way that we've seen in Europe. And eventually, you know, when things do get better, we will see a resumption of, of buybacks. The big thing is this goes back to our discussions on, on things like fee income. Really what banks are holding in better are those banks that are able to maintain profitability at or above cost of capital. And the, the less fee income, the more spread driven banks are, are the ones that are, are certainly suffering a bit more. Okay, well, let's move on away from uh, their performance and how that's going to develop and looking at a, a broader view of the role of banks um, in society and how expectations of how they behave might have uh, changed as a result of COVID-19. Now, Monica, in, in China, it's no surprise, I suppose, that the government called on the banks to help out, particularly because it's got a, a stake in many banks and a voice on the board of, of pretty much all of them. So if from a, a, an ESG, the environmental and social and governance um, lens that we we look at um, all of these companies as well. Um, it's not really a new thing in China, is it? There, there is this concept of companies working on behalf of stakeholders wherever they might be in society. Yes, yes. I think banks in this earnings season, one message they communicate with investors is that they are part of the economy and they have to support the economy when it's difficult because it serves to their interests as well. When the economy recovers, banks will do better. So that's their reason for doing all those national service duties. And I think another part of the national service duty we didn't mention so far is the disposal of non 
uh, performing loans for China banks. So they are required to dispose a large amount of NPLs this year and probably continue last next year. So this will drag their profit for those two years. Um, I think this also comes as a national service burden on their bottom line. And what does that do to valuations of those banks? It has trashed the valuation, so it has gone even cheaper for China banks because of the national duties uh, we've talked so far and because of the limb pressure from lower for longer interest rate uh, and also the fee income loss from cutting fees for corporates and also the weak consumption in the first half of the year during COVID. So a lot of negative things happening for China banks, and I don't think the prospect has improved much yet. So we'll probably see another difficult year. At what point do you think things might begin to, to pick up for, for banks in China? Our honest answer is that we really don't know. It really depends on regulators' view on the economy. I think probably we, we need to wait until mid next year to see whether regulators think it's okay for banks to release profit by not doing so much NPL disposal. And um, Federico, coming to Europe, where ESG and this idea of stakeholder capitalism um, is definitely becoming firmly ingrained by now, are we entering a new era of banks for social good? Banks for social good is certainly um, the trend in Europe. We've already seen it during the crisis when banks are part of the solution, not part of the problem. There are an arm of central bank uh, monetary policy, an arm of government fiscal policy. And then increasingly, you're, you're having to look at banks as conduits for climate change solutions. Uh, if you look at, for example, in the midst of the crisis, Barclays issued an AGM resolution where they're aligning their entire business model to being in keeping with a two-degree global warming by the year 2050. This is no small feat. It means they will have to entirely change their client relationships. They'll have to entirely gather data and see how they align themselves with an industrial and social shift towards net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. Now, this is a huge statement on their part, but it's indicative of what's coming for all European banks. I mean, the crisis, the COVID crisis, banks and stakeholder capitalism means that the next big issue on the horizon that people can see, we may suffer other curveballs, but is climate change. And the banks will be used as an arm of society to help effect this change. If they don't change along with the rules and regulations leading to a cleaner and lower emission economy, the banks will suffer because they will be left with stranded clients that are bad credits. They have to be stay ahead of this. And not only are they staying ahead of it, but they're being part of the solution again. And can they afford to do this, given all of the other challenges that we've talked about? Well, the question is if uh, banks driving products towards a transition towards a low, a low carbon economy is going to be profitable or not for the banks. Uh, in certain segments, we can certainly see, for example, the provision of financing for um, uh, wind farms and, and, and other items. It's hugely competitive and margins are very low. There are other areas like SME banking, mortgages where there's a lot of market failure involved and it means that banks if they're savvy in terms of creating the awareness um, showing people what the products they can use and then providing the financing they can provide an additive income stream some of it may be a substitution so you may have to substitute some of your larger industrial clients for other clients that are less exposed 
But certainly it's no easy feat and no easy game for the banks and that they will be stronger or more profitable as a result of this transition is not certain. But they have to do it because other way, otherwise they will get carried away by the river. And Lee, where are American banks on this? Because America has been uh, traditionally a bit slower on, on ESG than other parts of the, the world, but um, it has been catching up. Um, certainly this year, we've seen quite a lot of evidence of that. Is that also expressed in the banks? It's certainly true that the U.S. has been behind in, in, in a focus on ESG. But what, what I don't think we can argue is is the banking sector's positioning at the heart of the global economy. And, you know, their, their role in allocating capital and risk is being becoming increasingly important, as Federico was saying. So, you know, I think with the renewed focus or the new focus on ESG in the U.S., you know, if the industry lags and the industry doesn't move fast enough, there is a risk that policymakers and regulators get more involved. Um, we're already seeing, as mentioned, regulators experiment with client-based stress tests and, you know, requesting more information from the banks on, on their scope three emissions, which is the emissions that are generated from the companies they finance. So, you know, there, there's definitely a focus and the conversation, particularly with the large, more sophisticated U.S. banks, has certainly picked up. Well, I, I, can, I, can, I, can I ask you about that? And I, in fact, I'd like to ask all of you very briefly, because we're almost at the end. You know, what is the, the tenor of those conversations around ESG amongst the bank uh, managements that you're talking to? How has that changed? And, and where do you see it going? Monica, first of all. Yeah, I think they're increasingly um, talking about ESG. They realize this is an uh, important factor for investors to consider when investing in their stocks. Um, for example, they are doing some improvements to their board structure, adding more independent, non-executive board of directors. And also they are trying to refine their loan underwriting policies to increasing lend to those green uh, areas. Uh, but at the end of the day, as we discussed, they are under heavy state influence. So in difficult and extreme times like this, I don't think they have a lot of um, discretions or choice in their operation. And certainly protecting minority interest or lending to green areas won't be on top of their agenda, I think. Presumably a bit of a different picture, Federico, in, in Europe, where uh, still highly regulated, but not quite directed in, in the same way. Certainly in Europe, the larger financial institutions have elevated ESG and within that, the environmental and social aspects, because they've already done a lot of work on governance, uh, to a new level. So the conversation will be board of directors, chairman, and increasingly that mandate then is passed down to the executive board, so the CEO and CFO, to percolate through the entire organization. Um, the conversation is not one of just banks, it's banks, bank management teams and board of directors, NGOs and government organizations. So there's a concerted effort to define, for example, what is green, to define what um, economies need to achieve, you know, a transition to a low carbon economy. And the banks are well connected into that conversation and already trying to build these structures to make this happen. Um, when you look at what's actually happened on the ground, not very much has happened. 
and it's a lot of talk, a lot of structure. However, they're ready for, for this when it does happen. And it's going to be a push and pull. You're going to see governments passing laws that affect certain industries or, for example, the housing stock uh, or the way you consume things. And banks will act in tandem with these governments to help them pass this change that they're looking to pass through, for example, through financing, uh, etc. But it, it really is a higher level conversation right now and something that people are taking quite seriously. And um, Lee, briefly to you, anything that um, uh, springs to mind from the recent conversations you've had with, uh, with bank managements on the topic? You know, I, I think I would agree that the, the larger, more sophisticated banks are, are, are far more aware of sort of the repercussions of not at, acting at this point. Um, one leader of an investment bank told me it's table stakes to go in and talk to your clients about ESG at this point. So you can't just sort of kind of talk the talk. You, you need to put ESG types of, you know, climate issues um, front and center in your discussions with, with your clients. I, I think what the banks are trying to do is they know that there will be costs from this um, and this new focus, and there will be scrutiny, but they're also looking for ways to help their clients transition to you know cleaner business models and, and looking for sort of opportunities as well. There's a lot of focus always on the corporate side, but you know I think where we see a lot of banks actually trying to improve things in the U.S. Is, is more on the consumer side, trying to increase the transparency and the fairness of the services um, that they're providing, doing more for financial literacy uh, for consumers and, and offering products that will, will suit economically disadvantaged people as well. So right now, with the U.S. being behind, they're, they're trying to figure out, the U.S. banks are trying to figure out where, what are the costs and, and where can we help and where can we maybe even make money? A banking landscape transformed and transforming still. Lee Sotos, thank you very much indeed. And thank you also to Monica Lee and Federico Wynn. You can hear more from Fidelity's investment team on the pandemic and how it's affecting markets and investors on both our award-winning Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast. Just search for those titles on your podcast app. And you can read all the latest thinking online at fidelityinternational.com. The producer today was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity International, good Bye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.